0: listening to PPEs, Praxis, Politics, Education, and Solidarity. This is a podcast series curated by the Critical Filipina Filipino Studies Collective to highlight and uplift action and scholarship that is anti-imperialist, committed to movement building about the Philippines and the Filipino diaspora. This podcast is named PPE in honor of all the Filipinos, Filipinas working on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic all over the world and their continuing fight to work safely and with dignity. My name is Valerie Francisco Menchavez, and I'm your host today. Today's episode is a conversation with Dr. Michael Viola, highlighting the life and work of Dr. Joy Salas. Dr. Michael Viola is an associate professor at St. Mary's College of California in the Justice, Community, and Leadership Program, an affiliate faculty in the Ethnic Studies Program. He earned a PhD in education with an emphasis in urban schooling from the University of California, Los Angeles. He's currently working on a book project that examines Filipino-Filipina-American activism and solidarities from 1965 to the present. We're highlighting Dr. Joy Salas, who is an assistant professor of Asian American Studies at Cal State LA. She's working on a book manuscript called We Are Revolution, Empire, Diaspora, and Trans-Pacific Filipino Activism. She focuses on Filipino-American activists and their involvement in homeland politics after the watershed 1965 Immigration Act and during an era of military dictatorship in the Philippines under Ferdinand E. Marcos. Let's get our PPE on, y'all.
1: Joy, thank you so much for being on the podcast as our first guest in PPE. Um, Also wanted to give you the credit for that amazing title, um, Naming Us in this podcast series. So timely and so um, relevant. Um, Our first question is really what what was it like to be growing up like you, Joy, in Chicago, um, growing up? in this city and with your family, um, migration history, what was it like growing up um, in Chicago for you?
2: Thank you. I first wanna say thanks for um, this space. CFSC has been um, there for me since I was in grad school. So I just wanna thank you all for being um, great colleagues and mentors. And so, yeah, I'll go in uh, to the question of growing up. Um, So my parents, of course, I want to start with my parents. (laughs) Mm -hmm. They migrated to Chicago separately, so they met here. Um, My mom came as a nurse, um, like many Filipino moms. And my dad came here, and he worked in, um, in the hotel industry, also like many other Filipinos. Um, and then they met, I think through a friend who's now my godmother (laughs) or who became my godmother. And then they had me. So, um, it was, it was like the early nineties. Um, and yeah, so, um, I grew up in, in Chicago and the Chicago suburbs. Um, I grew up in a neighborhood that had a lot of Asian Americans, but not really a lot of Filipinos. So I was surrounded by a lot of Asians who were um, predominantly East Asian, like Chinese, Taiwanese, um, lots of Koreans, um, and also a lot of South Asians, too. Um, But I didn't really grow up around Filipino people, which was really interesting to me. But there are pockets of Chicago that have a lot of Filipinos um i just didn't grow up around one <laughs> so sometimes i'm like i don't know if i'm the best representative to ask about the filipino experience in chicago but um but you know i think there are there are folks like me who didn't grow up around other filipino community um so yeah i mean I did wonder like why my parents chose the neighborhood that we lived in. um I think it was primarily because they liked the the high school that or the public high school that I would go into um, which was one of which is one of the best public high schools in illinois um and so i that's i think the primary reason why we lived there um and um and I think like in high school, it was kind of weird because, um, I wanted to be friends with other Asian people, <laughs> um, but for some reason, which has to do with like intra-ethnic conflict, um, <laughs> I was not really like welcomed into like pan-Asian spaces, um, and so like um for example I remember I wanted to join this like Asian American club and then one of the people who was in charge of it he said I couldn't join because like Filipinos weren't Asian enough or you and I asked him like what I literally asked him like do you even know have you even looked at a map like of Asia <laughs> the whole you're like because it's in Asia <laughs> But then he like came at me with a lot of anti, like anti Filipino stuff, and then also anti black stuff, because he said like the oh, Filipinos are like the black people of Asia. He actually said the N word, um, um, and I was like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember, I remember saying that to him. I was like, what is yeah. wrong with you? Like, where are you getting this? Um, right. And, And then I said, I don't want to join your stupid club anyway. And then, yeah, so I got a lot of, (laughs) there were kind of, I had like more than enough experiences of that growing up where I would try to join like these Pan-Asian spaces, but then I would kind of be um, ostracized or like blocked out of them because of this perception that Filipinos were like um, not Asian enough, or they were like kind of a, they were like, you know, I don't know, it was like, you know, anti-Filipino stuff, intra-ethnic conflict, anti-Blackness, like, and also misogyny, because I also, at the time, I was a young girl who was also very outspoken. So I, so it was like a lot of like, real, real. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I think that kind of experience made me wonder, like, what, you know, what is the history of the Filipino community? Like, this is that this experience that I have. Doesn't really come out of nowhere. It comes out of somewhere, um, and then also going to college too. I went to Grinnell College, um, which is a small liberal arts school in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. <laughs> and and um, but you know there were Filipino students there. There was like twelve of us, and we formed a club. <laughs> and what was great though was that we were from all over the country, and some of us, a couple of us, were born in the Philippines too. And so, like some of us from Hawaii, um, Arizona, New York City, California, Chicago, like all over. And I thought, like, that was a really unique experience in learning about everybody's like growing up and like the different Filipino communities across the country, just through becoming friends with them. And that also made me more curious about like Filipino history, Filipino American history, and also like the different local histories that we all have. Um, and how they're so like you know unique but also in a way you know we're all you know similar like we've all had a similar kind of growing up in and kind of like the racialization that i talked about earlier um yeah so um yeah growing up like really influenced my my um, curiosity into going into studying filipino-american history and you know the history of the philippines and I think too in Chicago, like yeah, it's not really thought of as a space of Filipino American community or, or history. Honestly, the Midwest is always imagined as like a white, a white rural kind of you know heart heartland. You know, the heartland of America is imagined as white and everything. And um, sometimes like the Black communities acknowledged in mid- Midwestern cities, but I think that's like the most you'll ever get in terms of like perspectives of people of color from this region. But of course, you know, from looking at the events in the past summer, like a lot of them have occurred in the Midwest. And so it's, it seems like, yeah, at America's heartland is white supremacy and like anti-black violence. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's something that's, I don't know if people have noticed that, but I've definitely noticed that. and then also Chicago too, is the most segregated city in the country. I think it still is, which is a, probably a record that it doesn't want to have, um, but it's quite famous for. And I think other Midwestern cities have modeled their segregation after Chicago. Again, not, not a great <laughs> thing to be famous for. Um, like, um, And I think growing up in that way and in such a segregated environment, I didn't really notice it until I went to other places in the United States and saw the difference and, like, saw different, like, black and brown communities and Asian communities, like, living so close together and kind of on top of each other. And I thought, wow, I've, ne- I've never seen this. Like, there's more than, like, one group in, like, one space. <laughs> I felt so silly. Like, especially I, I think I noticed this for the first time when I went to um New York City, actually. I know it's segregated, but like it's definitely not as segregated to the extent of Chicago. And I was like, wow, there's like so many different types of people in this one place. Like it's so No, for real. I mean, as someone
1: who lived in New York City and, you know, um like got my degree at CUNY, um, the Bay Area, I mean, I, I, I feel like people think of segregation and they think about an American historical process and fact but for some, you know, the Bay Area is also very segregated in terms of, you know what I mean, Mike, like living mm-hmm. here in the Bay, you can really see even city to city or within cities, San Francisco, you know what I mean? Oakland and, you know, East Bay, you, could, you definitely see that there are homogenous pockets of mostly Asian, all of that. And New York City definitely is, there's lots of parts of it that's segregated, but it's kind of right next to each other. It's so dense. So I feel you,
2: Joy, on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I I, think
1: like,
2: yeah, I was going to just finish that thought and just say, I think like growing up around that segregation and seeing that, you know, it's not special in terms of like other cities, but seeing to the extent to which I lived in such a segregated city um and and also the suburbs are super segregated like it blew my mind and i thought that must also affect the way that i grew up (laughs) like like you know i grew up around like so many asian folks and you know some white people but i didn't grow up around any black people or you know latinx people Um, i mean at least when i went to high school like in when i was like little we were in a largely like Mexican neighborhood but then we moved literally i think 15 minutes away and there were like no more le- <laughs> latinos in our neighborhood so i think it's so it definitely affected the way i grew up and maybe want to learn more about about the connections between people of color um and also about you know the the history of Filipino Americans
3: joy it's so dope to have you uh on PPE, which stands for, oh, shoot, Pinoy Political Education and Engagement and Solidarity. We're still figuring it out, y'all. <laughs> but um, I wanted to also just note this moment. You have just completed your, what is it, your first week as an assistant professor <laughs> at Cal State? Second week? Yeah. At Cal State LA. Uh, teaching in a program that's important um, now more than ever, um, Asian-American studies, ethnic studies, uh, in a really important site of resistance um, and solidarity. Um, but I wanted to ask you, kind of building off of your historical historical narrative, is that you were trained as a historian. And so how has that, uh, like one, what has that offered you in terms of a critical you know, lens in terms of thinking about uh, Asian American studies, uh, Filipino American um, movements. Um, So yeah, kind of wanted to one, get kind of your, your introduction to history, Um, but then how did that inform some of your work Um, and some of the questions that you're asking about empire, dictatorships, activism?
2: Yeah, so I got into, yeah, a history program at Northwestern University, um, and I think like most history departments, it's super white. Um, it's so white that even the white people thought it was white, <laughs> which is how you know it's a problem. Hey. <laughs> um, not necessarily my cohort, but some up co- cohorts after me, I was like, wow, these are super white cohorts (laughs) um but yeah again it's not an anomaly unfortunately um and it's part of a I would like to it's part of a larger trend in history and I would like for that trend to just stop (laughs) at some points um but yeah so I think going into history I went into my program around in 2013-2014. That was a very, I think, politicizing moment for a lot of people. Um, That was when Black Lives Matter was starting to get really on a national stage. For the Filipino community, that's when Typhoon Haiyan hit or Typhoon Yolanda hit. and primarily the Visayas and my parents, or my mom is from Penai, so you know we were really worried about our family um, and I think, yeah, a lot of young people, and also just a lot of people in general, but a, a lot of people like to focus on the youth um, and students that they were people were getting really agitated, and we're seeing a lot of problems just not pop up but really like get go to the for- they went to the forefront of like national conversations they were always there like. You know under the surface or not even under the surface they were always there but i think they took a national stage um in that in those years and could they continue to be um and so you know going into my program that year i thought okay so we're going to talk more about race right <laughs> in u.s history right and yes and like no <laughs> i would say um I remember taking my U.S history seminars, which were required um, for us, and, and I thought, you know the stuff we were reading was kind of outdated. <laughs> um, I thought, um, we could have read more from historians of color. Um, I remember doing my exams, and I thought, "Why aren't we reading more from historians of color?" <laughs> I got very irritated by that. I'm um, actually um, and also, just as a Filipino person going into a grad program wanting to do Filipino American history, um, I felt like that wasn't necessarily valued, um, or my kind of lived experience or was valued in that in those in my classes, um, which is so weird because when you're like um, when you look at the history of ethnic studies and stuff, you know the organic knowledge, like coming from your community or lived experience is like central. It's so central to, um, um, you know, being able to do research um, and being able to learn about the world around you. Um, And so (laughs) I thought that was so strange. I was like (laughs) going into my program. Um, And I also thought it was so irritating too that for still, I think in some ways, you know, studies on the Philippines, Tend to be dominated by white folks, um, or like the studies of U.S. empire tend to be done through the lens of um, white historians, um, which is annoying. <laughs> Again, it's improving, but I think it it needs to. Um, people just need to retire. <laughs> That's all I <I'm> to say.
1: <laughs> and
2: and why do you think Joy?
1: It's so important to have a perspective of like someone um, in the Filipino. American or Filipino diasporic perspective to write that history? Like, why, why not the white people, you know? <laughs>
2: um, well, I think primarily it's, it acknowledges, not acknowledges, but I think as, as we've seen, for example, like more Filipino-American scholars are doing research on martial law. Uh, on Marcos's martial law, because we are currently living under Duterte's martial law. Um, but more scholars now, Filipino-American studies people are doing you know, work on the Marcos era. And kind of before it was, if anyone was gonna touch that subject, it was either like white historians or like activists at that time. Um, but I think it's important to have that, to, to have like a Filipino diasporic like, lens and perspective um because that's like part of our history of being here um you know most of us are here um because of marcos's labor export policy um you know our parents our relatives experience probably a lot of our parents and relatives experienced that era grew up in that era um, they might have like trauma from that era um and that's something that i think an out like a complete outsider can't really understand. It's even really hard for us to understand and I think we're still trying to like grapple with the legacies of the Marcos dictatorship and how it shaped you know the, how it shaped Philippine society and also the, di- the diaspora as well. Um, so I think that you know trying to understand like you know, the generations, like, these legacies of violence, uh, the experiences of state violence, like, compounded onto colonialism and imperialism, like, on, like, on us, like, I don't, I just don't think an outsider can do that work, it's, it's not, I don't know, and also it's about time we were able to do that work, Um, and, yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's the important part, is, like, not that they can't, they they sure definitely have, but that I think it's time that we also, you know, do that work and we lend our perspective on those consequences and and, and Mm -hmm. on those, the implications of those um, historical moments that are really, you know, we can really pull it through to the, the present moment of martial law under Duterte. Now, which leads me to another question, the, you know, the question that we're really trying to grapple with in this podcast series is um how do how do you can can you first talk to us a little bit about your project your book project and um and kind of tell us a little bit how you think it figures into a sort of critical philippinex studies framework why no
3: and i, I want to plug you came out with a piece that was built on uh, your dissertation work uh, this, this year that was published the Never Again the martial Law so I would just for our, all our listeners to to get access to that piece um, that was published in Amarasia. Um so just want to plug that uh, for you.
2: Thank you <laughs> yeah so i'm I'm still trying to figure out <laughs> what. My first book will be. I know what it's about. It's about you know Filipino American activism during the um, martial law years under Marcos and the connections between activists in the United States and the Philippines and how they created these these, these networks of solidarity. Um, and also, you know, looking at how you know the transnational transnational activism became important in the Filipino American community. Um, and became, you know, one of the central central characteristics of radical you know activism. Um, that's kind of what my book is trying to explore, <laughs> and you know what I explored in my dissertation, and also just overall in my research. Like I really focus on, you know, transnational activism, and um, I I think. Just, I mean, to, to actually reference the my never the hashtag never again to martial law article. Um, for me, what really motivated me to write that article, it's about basically the the connections between Marcos and Duterte as as authoritarians, but also the connections um, between activism back then to activism now and how student activists and youth activists now are really critically looking at the the legacies of um, the National Democratic Movement and um, integrating that history and, and that historical consciousness into their organizing now. Um, and I really wanted to write that article like right in this moment because A, it's really <laughs> crucial. And then I didn't know this, but in the peer review, apparently there hasn't at that time hadn't yet been a, a, a piece of scholarship that actually did those connections, especially in Filipino-American studies. Um, so that actually surprised me and then motivated me even more to publish it. Um, and I think too, like a lot of Fili- young Filipinos now, um, and by young, I mean like high school, college age, um, they, they want a more critical understanding of their experience and they want to know what's going on in the Philippines. Um, but they don't necessarily have outlets for it in their curriculum or in their in their college curriculum in their high school curriculum they may not have a Filipino professor or teacher um, but they're still doing the work like they're still doing the work in organizing and in trying to educate themselves Um, and I wanted to highlight that in my article like I wanted to show that there is this knowledge coming out of um, our communities Um, of of young people trying to educate themselves and and applying that to their activism right now. Um, So that was the type of urgency I had when writing my article. And I think with my book, I think, again, that urgency is still there. I think, kind of like what I said earlier, like, we're still trying to, we continue to grapple with the legacies of the Marcos regime, especially in this wild time of not only duterte but also like this this wild time of like global authoritarianism and like deadly neoliberalism <laughs> so um I think it's actually been hard to keep up with what's going on like with <laughs> with my with my manuscript um You know, because once you publish something, it kind of becomes dated in like a year, (laughs) a little bit. (laughs) So I'm trying to figure out like, where does my narrative end? (laughs) In terms of like, how to do this history um, and try to do justice to this history. But I think really highlighting that activism of the Marcos period and like the creation of transnational solidarities, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s is so important to understanding our current moment. Um, And the transnational and global solidarities people are trying to build today, not just in the Filipino community, you know, um, in other communities as well. Yeah, I think about how um, your work, Julie, has
1: always spoken to not just, um, you know, bringing the historical, experiences of our community in terms of transnational solidarity and activism. But what I love most about your work, what I've read about it, and when I've he- or what I've heard you present it, is just the stories. is so rich in that, like, you know, activists and Filipinos who have been separated from their homeland, who, you know, whether violently or not, forcibly or not, um, still have this Um, affinity this allegiance to their idea of their homeland and and trying to you know contribute to making it better and whether that is from you know their their communities in Chicago or New York or now you know all over the world Europe and you know Hong Kong and you know UAE that we are still invested in our homeland you know and that uh, and the stories that you tell humanize those those folks' lives and their investment to a better uh, a better Philippines and a better nation um for the even even for those who have left those homes so I just want to you know lift that part of your work up um, that richness and the humanity um behind your historical narratives. you know yeah. really lifting up our community's voices
3: so thank you <laughs> echo that, um, with-
2: that you can add. <laughs> bath or oh, my aunt, aunt. Aunt. yeah I just want to say to two things so I remember I interviewed my mom for um, just my research um, and I remember her saying that she I remember before I turned on the re- the, the um, recorder she said I don't know if my story is helpful because I don't know that much about history and that made me so sad because I feel like that might be kind of a sentiment a lot of Filipino, people have, like, especially like older folks and thinking that they don't have a stake in history, but they do. And so I just wanna encourage, you know, our listeners out there to interview your parents, (laughs) interview your grandparents. I think, you know, looking at the history of martial law, there's so much, I was amazed at how many sources there are. There really are. I mean, they're all over the world. They're in Europe, they're in the US and the Philippines. There's probably more places, especially if you count people who have stuff in their basements. And and it's, no one person can do this alone, which is why I'm so glad that there's like a cohort of, you know, scholars in our, in our field who are doing work on martial law, because, you know, not, no, there's no one person that can do this by themselves. It's really a collective effort. And I just want to encourage like for anyone listening, if you're really interested in like learning more about martial law, there's so much out there. It's kind of overwhelming just alone, like the documents on like Marcos's economic plunder of the country. It's like the tens of thousands of documents um, alone. So, I mean, yeah, just to encourage people to do research, <laughs> it's important.
3: <laughs> I wanna, I wanna echo the importance of the work that you're doing, Joy, um, and I, I'd like to. Um, as we, as we wrap up, I know this is a question that Val is continually asking us as a group, but others in the sense that, um, so, so let me just frame the question and it's two parts. One, what is critical Filipino, Filipina studies mean for you and your work? Um, why the critical? Uh, the second aspect in that, that I'm interested in is for Filipino Americans who are not in the academy right now, uh, but still want to utilize that framework or for scholars that are, what, why, why is that lens possibly um, transformative and empowering to asking um, and intervening in some really important questions that are happening right now, uh, whether it's dealing with labor exploitation whether it's dealing from dealing with climate change, whether it's dealing with um, white supremacy uh, and anti-blackness, um, so yeah, that two parts. Why the critical? What does critical Filipino studies mean for you, and how is it offering some conceptual a conceptual lens to our contemporary times? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so I've actually thought about this question a lot because I, I've noticed too, like just in the academy in general, there's been a lot more critical studies popping up, you know, there's um, like critical refugee studies, critical ethnic studies, critical prison studies, like there's so many. Um, and I'm th- and I just thinking like, why now? Like why all of a sudden now everyone wants to be critical? Not to say that they weren't before, but what is this like conscious effort to say that these studies, what we're doing is critical. And I think I think it has to do partly with the times that we're living in. Um, the fact that there's, again, it seems like a lot of these problems are popping up, but they've always been there. So like, I think part of critical is understanding the roots of, of our problems today, uh, understanding the history of them, um, and understanding the intersections too, of, you know, again, like racism, xenophobia, like everything. (laughs) Um, So I think getting to the root of the problem is part of doing critical work. Um, Like for example, in Filipino studies, you can't understand migration without understanding colonialism and not even just US colonialism, also Spanish colonialism. Um, And so I think that's an example of, um, you know, trying to understand the roots of, of current problems. Um, I think also critical, I think what a lot of, you know, critical studies are trying to offer too is not just, yeah, not just understanding the history, but also trying to envision like a future. What does like a radical future look like? What does a better future look like for us? Because um, this, this ain't it. Like <laughs> what we're living in is not the type of world I want to live in. This is not the type of world I want our our kids and future generations to live in. Um, and so I think, you know, the critical also looks at the future, um, and there are, and an and, and understanding that there are communities, there are people, there are knowledge makers, you know, organic intellectuals, there are people doing this work already of building our future, um, and um, uplifting that, um, so I think that's, that's kind of how I've looked at what critical means. Um, it looks really um, critically <laughs> at the past, <laughs> and also tries to imagine um, a better future.
1: Joy, what a wonderful place to um, bring us to, you know, bring us to this end, but also to the beginning of this podcast series. Um, We are embarking on this this podcast series as um the critical filipino filipina studies collective um and i think a part of our work is to envision what um it can be for us in the collective and folks who might want to be part in the future and um your those final thoughts really are um, are a good way arrow forward to for all for all three of us to kind of keep moving forward. Thank you so much, Joy, for sharing your story with us. (laughs) And just your your really deeply, you know, reflective insight on your work and also your experience. We're so grateful.
2: Thank you. I'm I'm always happy to talk to both of you.